Hello, I'm Trevor Dan. This is our monthly guide to what's happening on the doorsteps and in the council chambers. It's CAMS Politics for March 2024. During the next hour, more from South CAMS District Council, where their controversial four-day week is now the subject of an almighty spat between the ruling Lib Dems and the opposition Tories. Is it saving money or is it costing money? We'll see if the council's head of finance, John Williams, can clear it up for us. We'll also meet Sarah Nick Manis, who's looking for Cambridge votes in the forthcoming general election. And we'll talk to the Eastern organiser of Unison about the future of care services in Cambridgeshire and why trade unions are a good thing. And we're joined as ever by our political analyst, Phil Rogers. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Trevor. Now, I read your piece in The Independent about the new Mid-Cams constituency. How are you feeling now that that's going to go? This is the constituency where Anthony Brown, formerly of South Cams, has transported himself north. Yes, it was certainly very interesting talking to two of the candidates there. We'll have to see who the others are going to be. But I do think it could be one of those genuine three-way marginals. Um, Both Labour and the Lib Dems will be hoping to... uh, overturn the nominal Conservative majority there, which is quite a thing to do, but they've certainly both got prospects, I think. Since we last spoke, of course, we've had the George Galloway moment in Rochdale. That just shows you how difficult it is to predict these elections. You know, looking at the way Labour is kind of confidently saying we're preparing for government, it's not going to be perhaps the easy ride at the general election that they're expecting. It's hard to remember a more chaotic by-election, I think, than this one. As well as Labour disowning the candidate, the Greens did too. George Galloway is a very experienced street campaigner, but he's going to have to face the electorate again pretty soon when the general election comes. How important do you think it is that local candidates, I mean, candidates for Parliament, but who are standing you know, in constituencies where we live, how important is it that they have a ready answer? to a question about Israel and Gaza and Hamas and all those issues. It it almost reminds me of Vietnam in the 60s, that if you stood for election for any office, you had to say you were, you know, you were anti-American. Yes, I definitely think there is an element of that. And certainly there are some constituencies, and probably Cambridge is one of them, where people are going to be more passionately involved in the issue. And obviously it's a terrible situation and, and there's there's horrible things happening there. So it's hardly surprising that uh, the people are thinking about it. Nevertheless, one MP being elected in one by-election isn't really going to shift the needle very much on, on what the national policy is uh, towards Israel and Gaza. But it's certainly, I think, something that is going to be at the forefront of people's minds. Well, we're going to meet Sarah Nick Manis in a minute, who's standing for the Greens in the Cambridge constituency, and that'll follow the Eagles. The Eagles taking it easy on Cam's politics. Well, it's time now to meet our first guest, and you'll be hearing a lot from her when the general election comes round later this year. Sarah Nick Manis will be standing in the Cambridge City constituency for the Green Party and trying to dethrone the hot favourite Labour's Daniel Zeichner. And Sarah joins us now. Cam's Politics with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Sarah, let me start by asking you why on earth you would want to be an MP. I mean, we, we keep reading, don't we, about how MPs have a rotten life. There are people camped outside their houses. Uh, what's the attraction for you? Okay, well, I grew up in the Ruble Valley, and that was a, an area that was quite frequently under threat from development. And I remember when I was a teenager going with my uncle to a, a council meeting and objecting to um, the council building on a beautiful area of natural beauty that was near our farm. So, yes, yeah, so I suppose I've always had kind of a bit of a, a sort of fighting conscious when it comes to local politics. And, yeah, my dad's quite political as well. He's quite interested in local politics. And then I studied politics at university. There wasn't much call for politics teachers. This was back in the sort of late 90s. So I went and trained as an English teacher, which was my other specialization in my in my degree. So I was a teacher for a while and then um, I changed career and went into housing. So I got a um, good understanding of social housing and a lot of the issues there. And then I joined the Greens in, in 2015. I got a leaflet through my door and I just thought, yeah, this is the party for me. I was just looking back at the results in the Coleridge Ward last year and you were quite unlucky not to be elected, weren't you? You got 14%, yeah. which was only two or three percentage points below the Labour candidate who did get elected. What do you have to do, do you think, to persuade people that a vote for the Greens is not a wasted vote? Oh, and in Cambridge, it's it's a very good way to vote. I mean, we've already got four councillors. We've got three in Abbey. We've got one in Newnham. They're wonderful, very hardworking people. So I think once people start to understand that we're true to our word, we listen to people and we act on what people want to see happen, I think they're sold. <laughs> well, I, I would imagine that one of the issues that you have is that when you're knocking on the doors, people are going to say, oh, yes, of course, we want cleaner air and we want safer streets and we want all that good stuff. But by the way, we don't want to pay for any of it because we don't want our taxes to go up. How can you persuade people that you can deliver the kind of improvements that you want to people's lifestyles without having to get them to pay more? OK, well, we've seen a lot of debate about this in recent years, haven't we, with the with the congestion charge? And this is this is the conundrum. How do we get a better public transport system, which is which is absolutely awful at the moment? How do we get those changes in place as soon as possible without disadvantaging people who are already struggling in a really unequal, disgustingly unequal city? We've been thinking about this for years now, and the Greens consistently put forward sensible recommendations. We've been proposing the workplace parking levy. That's taxing companies who are wealthy enough to have a premises in the centre of the town, charging them for their parking places. They also benefit from Cambridge's international reputation. So we think it's, it's, it's fair enough to ask them to pay for their parking spots. But we understand that wouldn't bring in all of the money needed. So we've also, our councillors, particularly Naomi Bennett, Elliot Tong, who are Abbey councillors, have been uh, doing a lot of work on the council tax precept, which is the £36 extra for mayoral council tax, which would be effectively a bus precept. So that could also contribute to it. And we've also been talking about a tourist tax, which could be easily added onto the cost of, of coming here to, to have a hot, nice holiday in Cambridge. It's already been seen in Manchester. So, so these are quite practical solutions to sort of get all those funds together for the act, well, not just the bus system, but also the active travel network that we so desperately need in Cambridge.
Let me put to you that you would have more chance of getting some of these proposals through if you cooperated more with the Lib Dems. You know, I think you're the Greens are always in danger of splitting what I'm going to call the progressive vote. I'm not sure that we have that much in common with the Lib Dems at the moment. There doesn't seem to be a real reckoning with the overdevelopment crisis with the Lib Dems at the moment. We feel we've been onto that for quite a while. And the water crisis as well, that's, that's quite alarming at the moment. We feel they haven't really woken up to smell the coffee on that one. Just as you brought it up, let's just talk about the growth of Cambridge, because it is going to be an issue whenever we get to the election. Do you think that Michael Goh's proposals are at all realistic? Is it just kite flying? <laughs> I mean, this goes 150,000 new homes for the Greater Cambridgeshire. It's it's astronomic. It's not backed up with any evidence. And it's plainly ridiculous. And I think your listener will probably feel that too. We feel that the number of planned homes, I mean, unsurprisingly, we, we think that they should be significantly lower. We feel that 31,500 that was already provided for, the, for in the adopted local plan of 2018 is, is more than enough. Cambridge itself, it has 53,000 houses. It's a tiny city and it, it's full to the brim and there's a lot of pressure on our resources. And the worsening water crisis and our depleted chalk streams, and this is this is something that needs our crucial attention right now. And we've been raising this for over a decade. So I think that's something that we need to consider now. The Environment Agency is jumping on this now. It's it's getting in the way of developments because develop, it's asking develop to demonstrate water neutrality, which is really heartening to see. So we think that development and, and, and decisions about how many houses that, that Cambridge gets needs to be based on our resources, what we can actually support rather than speculative investment. Also, don't you think it should be devolved down to the local community? I mean, the idea that some, some geezers in Whitehall decide how many houses are going to be built on the fields at the bottom of my garden or yours seems insane, doesn't it, at a time when we're supposed to be into devolving power? Yeah, absolutely. And the Greens believe in grassroots decisions. We're really up against that with the council at the moment. I mean, never mind the government down at Whitehall, locally at the Guildhall, it's, it seems to be the same kind of thing, not listening to pe what people actually want. I know from talking to members of the Labour and Conservative Liberal Democrat parties, there's quite a lot of centralisation. You know, they all deny it, but it's pretty clear that there's a kind of party line delivered to them. And these are the things they're to say and to concentrate on in uh, radio and television interviews. Does the Green Party work like that? Do you have Caroline Lucas or her, her successors kind of sending you little Billy Doo saying, uh, this is what you should be saying, Sarah? No, not at all. We're an unwhipped party. We don't have whips. Our councillors, when they get voted in, they tend to behave more like independent councillors, so they can really listen to residents and they can make their own decisions about issues that are happening. So we really, we're really proud of that. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, we've got to remind ourselves of that as well, that we, we can act as, as individuals, but we all obviously a lot of people who come to the greens we, we have a lot of agreement and consensus about fairness and sustainability so there's some real common threads there as well but yeah it's 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 wonderful that we don't have whips in our party 
Tell me about this climate and ecology bill, which the Cambridge City Council has not signed up to, but the County Council has. Why is that an issue that we should be concerned about? Yeah, so this is crucially important. The climate and ecology bill, it's our commitment to get to this net zero phrase that the government keeps bandying about, but there's very little realistic commitment to it. So we've been distributing a petition to the council. We very quickly got over the 50 signatures needed for it to be presented to the council. So we're on the case with that. And what difference is that going to make, Sarah? It means that it's going to be discussed and it can be presented as a as a motion at council. Are you confident that there might be support for it? Yes, there's lots of we've we've got so many signatures so quickly in our community. We've been we've been spreading it around social media and on email and it's a bit of a no-brainer really. So you're standing as the parliamentary candidate for the Greens whenever the election is. When are you expecting it to be? <laughs> Um, I was expecting it to be before now. I was hoping it was going to be before now. But um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think it's, I don't know, October. I think I think that's the the estimation at the moment. Who knows? I think they're sort of, yeah, they're getting a bit desperate there, aren't they, the Conservative government? Well, thank you very much for joining us on Cam's Politics, Sarah. I'm sure we'll meet you again when we do some hustings uh, yes. with Daniel and Cheney and the other candidates later on in the year. And um, it's very kind of you to come on. Thank you for having me, Trevor. Thanks very much. It's been great. Cam's Politics for March. I'm Trevor Dan. Phil Rogers is here. What did you make of Sarah Nick Manis? Well, I don't think she'll be packing her bags for Westminster very soon. The, the Greens have traditionally had a hard time of it at parliamentary elections, at, at least in Cambridge, and they're very sensibly targeting their resources on just four seats at the next general election, and, and Cambridge is not one of those. But nevertheless, I think they'll be hoping to improve their situation, and certainly when the local elections come, I think they will be looking at Coleridge Ward very seriously, They've got a very solid grip on Abbey now. They've made advances in Newnham and I think Coleridge is their third target. I thought Sarah was perhaps a little disingenuous when I asked her if it would be better if they collaborated more with the Lib Dems. Do you think the Lib Dems, as they've chased government over the past couple of decades, have lost some of that we're the cool outsiders image that they used to rely on in places like Cambridge? Well, the Lib Dems certainly used to benefit from what I would call the none of the above vote for people who were fed up with the two main parties. And I do think that some of that vote is now going to the Greens. And I think particularly if Labour do get into government, as people become sort of dissatisfied inevitably with something or other that they do, there may well be more people turning to the Greens rather than the Lib Dems, as we've seen in the past. What did you make of Sarah telling us that there's no whipping in the Green Party? That's a policy that they've followed for some time. Both Labour and the Lib Dems at council and indeed at parliamentary level have a, a whipping system. So they're all they're all told what to think. And if they want to vote um, a different way, you know, they, they can do that. But that, that's very much going against the party line, whereas the Greens traditionally operate in a more sort of persuasive way. But nevertheless, they do all seem to vote together pretty much at, at, at council level, at, at least most of the time. Thanks very much for now. Don't go anywhere, Phil. It's Cam's Politics for March. And here's Edwin Collins. That's the splendid Edwin Collins and a girl like you. You're with Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. Still to come, our conversation with Unison about the future of local care services. 
But I make no apologies for revisiting the story of South Cambridgeshire District Council's four-day week. The Conservative opposition are incensed. You may have heard their leader, Heather Williams, on the last episode of this programme. It's a waste of money, they say, depriving council taxpayers of services they're entitled to. No, no, say the ruling Lib Dems. It actually represents a saving of nearly half a million pounds a year. In the hot seat in the council chamber is John Williams, the cabinet leader on finance and resources. I've been getting his take on the bottom line. So, John Williams, let's start, first of all, with the question that's going to be on the lips of uh, everybody in South Cams, which is why has the council tax got to go up? Well, council tax in South Cams is one of the lowest in the country. We made a decision to increase it by... 3%, which given that inflation is currently running at over 4%, is an actual cut in council tax. And we've done it so that we can protect the services that we provide for people, such as collecting bins and delivery planning applications, helping Ukrainian refugees and building more council houses. So don't forget, your council tax bill isn't just from South Cams. South Cams collect the money, but actually it's for the county council, the fire service, the police, your local parish council, the mayor. So actually, South Cams is quite a small part of that council tax bill. And it amounts to about 10p a week or £5 a year. Now, the Conservative opposition have um, got quite agitated about the fact that you've put your own allowances up. And of course, theirs. But why have you felt it necessary to give yourselves a pay rise? OK, now this pay rise is for this year. So it includes the period when we saw consumer price index rise over 10%. We didn't decide on the amount. This was done by an independent panel. So no connection with the council, no connection with the councillors. And it's them that suggested that we ought to have this 5% pay rise against that background of a 10% increase in cost of living. Also, if you compare South Cams with other district councils, and I take East Cams because East Cams are always saying that um, they don't raise their council tax and they keep a very tight ship. Even they put their allowances up by 12% and they're conservative run and they get an allowance which is about £1,000, over £1,000 more than we do. So we continue to be one of the lowest paid councils in the country for its members' allowances. All right, John, let me take you on to this question about the money that the four-day week is saving or isn't. In your last press release, you say that the council has spent £434,000 less on agency staff, which you say is a net saving of 316000 Meanwhile, the Conservatives are saying that you're actually spending more on agency staff. So where's the truth? Okay, unfortunately, the Conservatives have got confused over exactly who is involved in what we call a transformation scheme. Transformation forms part of a bigger department and they are saying that the whole cost of that department should be put against the four-day week. Whereas actually only seven or eight people actually of that department are directly involved with the four-day week. The other hundred and odd people, which they are claiming are part of the four-day week trial, are not involved in the four-day week, other than they obviously 
our staff that are you know taking advantage of the four-day week trial so this three million that they keep banding about is the total cost of running not just transformation scheme but also our communities our human resources department our comms department everything to do with the backroom office of the council so they have just got this so wrong and i'm just going to interrupt you john and just just help me if you will understand what you mean by people who are taking the four-day week and the advantages of it but are not technically involved in the trial what's what is the difference there i'm not sure i understand that Oh, no, they are involved in the trial. But what the Conservatives are saying is that the cost of those staff, which is covered anyway, they'd be doing that work anyway, should be taken out and costed against the four-day week. So, in fact, it's a bit of a double counting, actually, because those staff are already being paid for, but they're doing them, in most of them are doing. And and I have to say something else about the four-day week trial. It is voluntary. If staff don't want to work four days a week, they want to stick with the five-day week, they can. You and know, does, does anyone something. do that? There are a few people who have done that, whose personal circumstances, they would rather continue working five days a week, and that's fine. Okay, so do you spend more money on agency staff now than you used to, which is the Tory accusation? No, and in fact, let me explain what agency staff costs mean. We In the budget, we budget for filling a post full-time with a person employed by the council however if we can't fill that post and particularly in planning where we need planning officers of a lot of experience particularly in south camps in the city where we've got a lot of development we need people with a lot of experience if we can't fill that post then we have to get someone in to fill it because we do have to still have that post and what we've been doing in the past is that we've been bringing in someone from a consultancy now they typically cost us about twice as much than it would do to fill that post with a member of staff and that difference is an overspend because we haven't provided for it in the budget and so we have to find that money out of our reserves and it's that overspend that we're saving on so far it looks like for this current financial year which ends next month we will have saved nearly half a million pounds because since we've introduced the four-day week trial we've been able to fill 10 of those hard-to-fill posts, nine in planning and one in health. So Heather Williams, the Conservative leader, says, and I quote, I'm truly dumbfounded. Residents are repeatedly being let down when they lead us most. My conscience is clear. I wonder if the Lib Dems can look in the mirror and feel the same. Now, I can see you on Zoom and you've actually got a mirror behind you. I would, <laughs> if you were capable of turning around and looking in that now, would you be able to feel that your conscience is clear? Yes, because what we're doing is we're saving the council money. We're ensuring consistency and continuity of service because we're not all the time having to swap people in senior posts as their contracts run out or they can't continue with those contracts. We also have been greatly improved the well-being and health of our um, staff. And I have to say, this is very much in line with what um, businesses in the private sector have found with a four-day week. They have found that their staff morale is better, their productivity goes up, their well-being is better. And actually, they're all the things that we have also found in our trial. So, you know, it seems odd that the government 
praises the private sector for introducing uh, four-day week innovation, but not the public sector. Somehow, however, we should all be working five days a week and shouldn't get the benefits of what the uh, the private sectors. Where do you stand now with the government? I mean, they've wielded that big stick a few times, haven't they, and, and threatened you with all sorts of sanctions if you don't abandon this four-day week experiment. Has that sort of gone on the back burner a bit now? What we've always wanted to do is to be allowed to carry out a trial at least 12 months to get data and the experience of that trial so that we can then go to consult and then take a vote in full council involving all council members as to whether or not we should make that permanent or not. Now, unfortunately, we had to start the trial later in waste because in order to do that, we had to do quite a bit of work beforehand in rearranging rounds, etc. And it, we wanted to coincide it anyway with the review that we always take every five, six years on rounds. And so that was late starting. And so we're only really three months into that. Now, the government has thrown a spanner in the works because just before Christmas, the Secretary of State said that he would introduce financial penalties for any council that introduced a four-day week. And we've been trying to find out since then what that actually means, because when we go out to consult people, we need to explain to them what the financial consequences would be if we continue with a four day week. And at the moment, no one can tell us what those consequences are. So we've had to delay the consultation because there's no point if we went out and consulted and we didn't tell people what the financial implications were then quite rightly, people would come back and challenge that consultation and say, well, you've only told us half the story. What's it mean for us in our council tax? And we're not at the moment able to say that. So what Cabinet has decided is that we should delay the consultation until we know from the government what these financial penalties are going to be. And that unfortunately means that whereas we were hoping to present a report in May and June, we can't do that now. And so that whole thing has now been pushed back by the Secretary of State for about six months or so. It's CAMS Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. And we'll be back with John Williams from South CAMS District Council after this from Beverly Knight. Look at your eyes pulling me in, taking me Beverly Knight's wonderful version of Diane Warren's Not Prepared For You. It's Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. Back now to our interview with John Williams from South Cam's District Council. OK, John, let me pick out something else from your business plan, which I think a lot of people will be intrigued by. You've talked about the digital transformation, as you call it, and you say that this includes the first public-facing use by the council of AI in providing direct support to residents. Now, this sounds a lot like um, instead of getting a human being, I might be getting a speak-to-wait machine at the end of the phone. <laughs> what does that actually mean? What it means is that um, we will use technology to identify who it is that should be dealing with your complaint or your um, inquiry to make sure that you are put in touch with that person. Also, we get a lot of simple questions 
at the moment, you know, and what we can do with AI is that we can tailor the answers to your particular circumstances. And that enables us to free up people at the contact center to actually deal with other more complex matters. Also, it means that people can access us more often via the internet, via the web. So they don't actually have to talk to someone. They don't have to hang on to, on the end of a telephone. Although I have to say, you'll see from our key performance indicators, we're very good at answering the phone, actually, much better than uh, some, some of our utility uh, friends. But, you know, if you just want to find out, for example, how you go about putting in a plan application, you can go onto the, you know, through the website, onto the planning portal, and you'll get that information. You, you'll also get a video showing you what to do. And if you've got a particular problem, you can then get that information direct on the internet, on your laptop or PC, without actually having to go through the system and speak to someone. So that's what AI, I mean, it's now, you know, it, it's being used quite widely in the private sector. It's also being used quite widely now in local government. I mean, we're not one of the leaders in this in fact um you know quite a few councils derby council for example Owsbury, um another example they already do this and they are finding that the quality of service is better people get a quicker response and importantly for council taxpayers it's actually more it's cheaper uh, so to, no robots answering the phone then that's a, that, that, no no i promise you we, we we will not have robots running south council council Okay, so uh, I wanted to ask you about the extent to which you collaborate with the Conservatives on the Council. I've read out one of Heather Williams' statements, and it sounds as though there's a lot of angst around, and they 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 seem quite cross. And yet, local government at its best, I think, is not about just confrontation. It's about working together. Um, can you work together with the with the Tories, or is it do you kind of walk in opposite directions when you meet in the corridor? No, no, we don't. No, we don't. We don't avoid each other in the corridor, and and outside the council chamber, we pretty much get on well together. I think we just have a different ideology. So when we're actually in the council chamber, when we're in committee, uh, and quite often in committee, actually members, you know. Uh, Lib Dem and Conservative members quite often uh, agree on lots of things. But, you know, unfortunately, it, it is confrontational in the council chamber before council. It's just the way it is. You know, that is politics. We do have very strong views and uh, we have very strong opposing views on things. I mean, four day week is a really good example of that. But otherwise, you know, things are to do with uh, the, the council budget, to do with commercial investments, for example. The Conservatives are not keen on commercial investments. We are very fortunate in South Camps that we have some very good companies in the life sciences. We've got three properties on the Cambridge Science Park, which incidentally is in South Camps, not in the city. And as a result, we get something like three and a half million pounds a year from rents from those properties. And of course, that's money that goes towards keeping services running. And in all, you know, together with Ermine Street, uh, we we have an income of over £7 million a year, which is put towards running the, running the council services. 
Councillor John Williams, lead cabinet member for finance and resources at South Cam's District Council. Thank you ever so much for joining us on Cam's Politics. I'm delighted. Thank you, Trevor. Well, Phil Rogers, the four-day week isn't going away, is it? And just in the last uh, few hours before we recorded this show, North Hearts, which was trying to do something similar, has been told that it can't. This is becoming kind of a big issue, isn't it? It does seem to be a bit of a battleground area. But nevertheless, as the general election approaches and perhaps central government's attention turns to other things, we we may see them sort of slackening off a little bit. And I think perhaps South Camps will be hoping for a change of government and a, a more lenient attitude in, uh, in, in future. But this is certainly going to be a, an issue on the doorsteps, I think. What really surprises me is just how hysterical the... Conservative Party has become about this issue. Its um, press releases are just bewilderingly angry. I think both at local level and nationally, they're they're very much against it. And I, I think particularly nationally, they're keen not to see this spreading more widely. It, it's effectively a way of giving a you know an effective pay rise to council workers without actually having to pay them any more money because you're you're giving them time off instead. So their their sort of hourly rate has gone up. But you're you're still sort of paying them the same amount, and in the current financial circumstances, you know that's certainly pretty attractive for for people wanting to go and work there. The thing that surprises me, and you will know more about this than I do from your time in local politics, a lot of which is about looking at spreadsheets and analysing data. How can a party like the Liberal Democrats and a party like the Conservatives be? looking at the same numbers and coming up with such different analysis, is it costing a lot more money or is it actually saving money? They can't both be right, can they? Well, they're certainly both putting their spin on the particular numbers that we're getting. For example, you know, the, the Lib Dems are saying, well, these posts were all hard to fill and now we don't have to, now we've managed to recruit people and, and so we don't have to pay much more expensive agency stuff. But on the other hand, it's kind of hard to know how many people they would have recruited even without the four-day week in the meantime. And, and that number probably isn't zero, but it's it's sort of hard to guess what it would be. Ultimately, you know, they're still paying the same amount to their staff, but their staff are doing only four days instead of five days. And if they could do all the work in that time, then they're doing all right. But if they aren't doing all the work in the time, then effectively the, the council is losing money. So it's it's a very fine judgment. And the government is now requiring South Cams to produce a great amount of data on a regular basis. And there'll be a lot of people looking at that and trying to interpret it to understand what the true picture is. Well, we'll talk more about South Cams and its four-day week with Tim Roberts from Unison. We don't very often have trade union reps on this show, perhaps not often enough, but he'll be joining us after Snow Patrol. We'll do it all. Tracing cars from Snow Patrol on Cams Politics. Now let's meet Tim Roberts, who's the Eastern Region Organiser for Unison. They're trying to persuade all parliamentary candidates and local councils to sign up to their proposals for a national care service. But first, a general word about unions in 21st century British politics. We used to hear a lot about what training unions got up to on regular news bulletins. And I feel as though we don't so much now. We see your members with placards outside hospitals and other places. What's really, in a nutshell, what you're about as a modern 21st century trade union? 
Well, I mean, Unison, we're the largest trade union in the UK. We've got 1.3 million members that work across the public services. So whether that is in local government or in schools and colleges, universities, police support staff, and the NHS and whether that's directly employed by those organisations or private contractors such as cleaning and, and facility services that work for those employers. And our job fundamentally as a trade union is to campaign for and deliver fairer, safer healthier workplaces for our members and often we do that in partnership we work closely with employers across Cambridgeshire whether that's at the district councils the county councils the hospitals the ambulance service and we work with them and we give them advice and support about kind of what our members are saying and negotiate with them around how the improvements that they can make we support individual members with their own issues whether that's a, you know, a, a sickness issue or they're being disciplined or, or they've got a complaint about their manager, we will support members in that way. And then very occasionally, what we think and what our members think is the, the, sort of the safest way for those workplaces to be. Employers might not necessarily agree and we get into a dispute. And you talked about placards and sometimes that, that dispute might result in a strike. But that happens very rarely. The majority, 99% of our time, we are spending either getting agreement with the employers or negotiating with them in a constructive way. Just like we're doing in South Cams at the moment around the four-day working week. That's a, that's a project which we are working closely with the council on. We've just talked to John Williams, the uh, Finance and Resources Lead at South Cams. I just wanted to ask you about the relationship that you have with the Labour Party. Historically, the trade union set up the Labour Party, but you've had your ups and downs over the years. Where do you stand now in terms of a partnership with them? Well, we as a trade union, we are affiliated to the Labour Party. And so that means that our members have a choice. They can, through their membership payments to us, that they can choose to support the Labour Party and that give us a voice within the Labour Party. As you say, the trade unions established the Labour Party over a century ago. So we do use that influence around shaping Labour Party policy. We've got a key part of the Labour Party manifesto is going to be the new deal for working people. There's a, a, a suite of policies ending fire and rehire, ending zero hours contracts, having employment rights from day one, positive duty on public sector organisations to uh, tackle inequality. All of that has been developed while working in partnership with the trade unions with the party. Now, there are many things that we disagree with. We are independent of that party. So we have we have influence. We have a voice inside of it. We largely agree. But there's areas that we uh, disagree on. We wish the party could go further and faster. But I think generally we have a supportive role there. And we believe that unison members, public service workers are better served by a Labour government than the one that we have now. Now, you don't need me to tell you that a lot of the national press tried to paint you guys as the bogeymen of almost every situation. Is your sense that people in the broadest sense support the objectives of trade unions these days? I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking this because my sense is they do. 
you know, when it comes to clapping for the NHS and paying doctors more and care workers more and all the rest of it, it seems to me to be a sense of, well, unions are probably on the right lines these days. Yeah, I mean, we get significant support from the public in our campaigns. I think we know that outside there, across Cambridgeshire, the public, they don't want their elderly relatives being cared for by somebody on a minimum wage that has no sick pay entitlement. So they have to go into those care homes while that they have got um, coughs and sneezes or, or tummy bug because they can't afford to not go to work. That we have public support to know that um, the school system is dependent not just on the work of teachers, but on the work of the teaching assistants in those classrooms, the uh, lab technicians, the caretaker, which keeps the, the school clean. So when due to 14 years of austerity that we have employers across Cambridge having to make some really difficult decisions around cutting jobs and we say this is wrong, it's wrong for public services, it's wrong for the, for the people which rely on them, that we do get masses of support from the public. Tell me more about this pledge that you want parliamentary candidates of all hues to sign up to about having a national care service. We fundamentally believe, as a trade union, um, as the largest trade union in, in social care, that the current model for social care is broken. You know, we will know this from, from our family's experiences. We have a, our elderly, in particular, needing social care. And whether that is domiciliary care, so people coming into their homes to help them make their food and to wash them and put them in bed at night and get them up, or whether that's within care homes, residential care homes. And the staff which work in those with vital services looking after literally the most vulnerable in our community it is abhorrent i think that they are paid the minimum wage so we have we know that our members are leaving social care in their droves because they can get a better paid job in the supermarket or pets at home and what does that say for us as a society when we value social care work in that way I guess the point, though, Tim, is that you've got to convince people who are feeling squeezed because of the cost of living crisis that they want to pay more. And that's the, the something that the Conservatives resile from. Well, I mean, I think it's about what society needs, isn't it? So there are 160,000 vacancies in England and Wales in social care currently. I know that from my grandparents' experience, that the bar is so high to get local authority social care, to get people coming into your home and assisting. And it is because the demand vastly outstrips supply. So for a local authority, that it should, when it commissions social care, it should be able to say within the commissioning arrangements that actually if you work for like the council or a service commissioned by the council, you should pay your staff a decent salary and that you should be able to give them some very basic terms and conditions like sick pay. This isn't going to be sorted. And, and the reason why Unison is campaigning for a national care service with the same kind of model as the NHS is that we need to look at how care is delivered in this country. Stop this fragmented approach being delivered by thousands of different organisations in the east of England. Literally hundreds of organisations will take part in social care in Cambridgeshire alone. And that actually work in a way which says that there's a minimum level of service 
So it's not a postcode lottery. So a disabled person in Colchester gets the same support as one in Cambridge, as, as gets the same support as, as one in Carlisle. And that all workers, whether they're directly employed by the local authority or by a private agency, know that there is a minimum level of pay. And by doing that, by changing the model, not only will we take steps to, as a country, to start filling the vacancies in the social care sector. Not only will we ensure that people doing this vital work have got enough money to put food on the table for their family, but fundamentally it drives up standards. It means that disabled people and and older people get the care which they need to deliver them dignity and respect in their stages of their life. And that's something which I think all of your listeners want from their families and their neighbours. Tim Roberts from Unison, thank you so much for joining us on Cameras Politics. Thank you. Well, Phil Rogers, was I fair to say that we don't hear as much from trade union leaders as we used to in news bulletins? I think that's certainly fair to say. I mean, if you look back at, um, you know, the 1970s and uh, all the industrial strife there was at that time or the miners' strike in the 80s, trade unions were really sort of front and centre of national politics in a way that they aren't anymore. But nevertheless, they are still playing a very important role in the economy and uh, very important to uh, to many workers in many industries. Do you think that the Labour Party locally are as keen to have his support as he is suggesting they would be? I think they're certainly keen to get the funding that they're getting from the unions, and the unions remain one of the main funders of of the Labour Party, and they get a good deal of funding from other sources too. But without the union cash, they would be really finding it hard to raise enough money to campaign effectively, I think. And the Daily Mail and others will always say that that makes any Labour government or any Labour council, quote, in hoc to the unions. Uh, Do they have a point? Well, there is definitely tension in the relationship, I think, and Labour government isn't always going to do what the unions want them to. But nevertheless, from the point of view of the unions, a Labour government is a great deal preferable to the alternative. Well, that nearly wraps it up for our March edition. We'll be back in April, by which time we shall be in what we used to call PERDO, which is the period where we have to be very consistent and fair about the way we treat political parties. What's likely to be happening between now and then? Well, we're starting to see the Police and Crime Commissioner candidates emerging now. So they will be campaigning very vigorously across the whole of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough for for that election. And we've also got the local elections in Cambridge coming up. So there's a a third of the city council seats up for election. So there's, I mean, there's already a lot of people knocking on doors and pushing leaflets through through letterboxes. And uh, we'll see plenty more of that before May comes. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you in April, uh, first Sunday thereof. And um, in the meantime, have a good March. Thanks for having me as ever. That was Phil Rogers. Thanks to all our guests. Do join us if you can on April the 7th or any time you fancy online. I've been Trevor Dan. Thanks for listening. Ta-da. Ta-da.